Welcome back to the action field for the first episode of season two. I'm hoping everyone's doing well or as well as we can be all things considered. It's like the end of, well, it's the start of February now, in fact. So January's already gone for 2022. And, you know, COVID is still around. There's like 10,000 cases a day. I've just returned to work in the city myself. Numbers in the city are kind of low. The city was making a comeback in December. Numbers were getting up. It was really great for local businesses. My brother part owns a cafe there. My other brother from a different mother works at another one of the cafes in the same chain. City vendors have been doing it tough, man. I mean, doing it tough, potentially everybody at times has been doing it tough. Now, as such, I thought it would be a great thing to make the first episode for season two all about love. (laughs) Now, it's not going to be all love. It's like all warm and gooey. It's like, you know, let's all give each other a hug and stuff like that. It's great. That's a great side of love. Sure. We all love the affectionate, warm nature of love. But yeah, it can be painful at times. Could even induce suffering, you could say, at times. So we're going to get straight into it now. Now, in this first segment, we're going to talk about what the Vedas say about love. The Vedic tradition, what they say about love. And I was informed about this with my studies of the Veda through Laura Pool at Mahasoma, the great Laura Pool. Love Laura. Um, miss her. I haven't seen her in a while. She's moved up north. Miss you, Laura, if you ever get to hear this. <laughs> so we're studying a, what they call a Rishi course. The Rishi, a Rishi is a seer of sound. The Rishi can cognize messages from the universe and use that to inform their actions moving forward. They are able to see the sound. Now, if you remember back to the episode I did on, what was it? Maybe it was on the Bhagavad Gita and we spoke about the origins of meditation and the Vedas. The Vedas date back, I think the earliest one was called the Rug Veda. Dates all the way back to oh, 1500 BC, maybe even further back, maybe into like to 2500 BC. And it was initially an oral tradition. It wasn't, it was a spoken tradition. It was passed on in word. So that could be why the Rishi has to be able to see the sound is because the Vedas were initially were an oral tradition. If I'm wrong about this, someone reach out, write me, would love to be straightened up. But from as far as I know, that's the deal. So studying this Rishi Rishi course with Laura at Mahasoma, and we got to stage four, which was the love module. So we went up and spent a weekend away on her property in uh was on the surf coast like i've never been so uh in such a remote place really beautiful uh so the course went oh was it just a full day maybe it was just a yeah it was a day course that's right all on a sunday and we spoke all about love now one of the things that i heard that really really caught my mind is this concept this idea of what they call in the Vedic word Lash Avija, Lash Avija, L-A-C-H-E, second word V-I-D-Y-A. Now, what the hell is Lash Avija? Well, Lash Avija means the faint remains of ignorance. So it's just the faint remains of ignorance. It's not maximum ignorance where we ignore everything, all the messages coming to us, which just, you know, ends up in suffering. And it's not minimum ignorance where we acknowledge everything all the time and we're then unable to recognize the differences in each other, which could lead us to be permanently mired in oneness, which can lead to this other experience called Shunyavada. I'll get back to that in a sec. So just a little bit on more on what Lash Avidya is. So Lash Avidya, like I said, means the faint remains of ignorance. And it's all about using ignorance as a tool to create the joy of unity. 
Lasha video is the intended and knowing exploration of how we would like to style our ignorance. Sounds kind of cool, huh? How do you want to style your ignorance? Well, I want to style it like this, man. Well, I want to style mine like this, man. Right on, man. So what is it exactly we are ignoring here when we're going to talk about maximum ignorance and minimum ignorance? What are we ignoring? Well, we're ignoring the ultimate truth, which is the ultimate truth, I should say, which is the oneness of our totality. So it says here in my handbook from the Rishi course, in order to experience love, which you could say is unity, there has to be two things to unite. Unity is not oneness. Unity is like different things coming together. So there has to be two things to unite in order to experience love. So therefore, we have to slightly forget our oneness, our ultimate truth. One, we're all one. We're all part of like this giant organism pulsing together. And it goes as far out as the totality of the universe. We have to forget that in order to play in the world of differences in order to have the rewarding experience of love. So without unity, differences make no sense. But with unity, differences have meaning. They become the mechanism for the experience of love, which as they like to think in the Vedic tradition is the whole purpose of life. Love is. Do I disagree with that? Well, not necessarily. It's kind of cool. All you need is love. <laughs> I'll touch again on that in a sec. So, like I was saying, so we want, we don't want maximum ignorance where we ignore too much leads to suffering. We don't want minimum ignorance where we acknowledge everything and then we're unable to honor the differences in each other and become, like I said, permanently mired in oneness. And like I mentioned earlier, there is a term for this. They call this Shunya Vada. And that's something that must never be aspired for. You're even supposed to say it kind of quiet, like Shunyavada, because it's like saying Voldemort in Harry Potter. You don't want to go there. Don't say that. <laughs> so Shunyavada, it's like this state of perfection where no intention exists, but we don't want that. Of course, we don't want no intention. We want to have intention. We want to play in creativity and not eliminate creativity because if we eliminate the knowledge of all differences and live permanently in that state of oneness we therefore eliminate the possibility of experiencing love we need differences to experience love so what we want is that optimum amount of ignorance. So not too much ignoring of differences, which just causes pain and suffering, not too little amount of ignoring, which can lead to shunyavada. We don't want to go there. No, we want the faint remains of ignorance. This brings a whole lot of unity. If you have that little faint bit of ignorance, we can ignore differences here and there. It enables people, we can talk about people in this instance, to unite. When people unite by ignoring little differences that can potentially get on each other's nerves, it stimulates the phenomenon of love. Now, there's a good analogy for having like the faint remains of ignorance. And it's the ginger tea analogy. We spoke about this in our um, 12 hour session with Laura. It's like a total fiend for teaching. Huge respect. Love her. So we want our ignorance to be like our experience of ginger tea. So when you make a ginger tea, like you could have it with a bit of honey and lemon. Oh, that's great. That's tasty. You slice off the ginger, right? You put it in the hot water. Now, when you're drinking, you're just sipping on it. You're not going to like glug the whole thing and then eat the ginger as well. No. Pretend ginger is ignorance. You just want it to flavor your tea, right? Some nice, delicious ginger tea, just sip it and have like the essence of ginger. So you have like the essence of ignorance, not a whole bunch of ignorance. You end up making, you know, stupid decisions, doing bloody stupid things. <laughs> no, we just want the faint remains, like the beautiful ginger flavor in our ginger tea. So this is 
Lasha Vidya. And the Vedas contend that we need this in order to get excited by the differences in each other, just enough to experience the unity. Remembering unity, like I said, it's not oneness. It's where there's different entities coming together. It could even be opposites coming together. Jung speaks about that a lot, the unity, the coming together of opposites. But we'll get back to that in a bit. So we want to be stimulated enough by the differences in each other to experience the unity of love. Therefore, like I've been getting at, be willing to let go of some knowledge. Be willing to let go into love. You know, maybe you've heard that phrase, let go into love. When people say that, potentially this is what they're meaning. Let go of differences, of spotting the differences Enough to be able to experience love because intellectually you will always be able to talk yourself out of love because it hardly makes any bloody sense. You know, from my little taste of it with the Vedic world, it makes it all sound, you know, blissful and wonderful. But love includes like, or it can include, no, I'll say it will include, comes with the sacrifice. Love includes vast amounts of pain, like an anguish. And why we would be willing to go into such is a great mystery. We're going to go deep into the mystery with Carl Jung in the next segment. But this is partly the knowledge we must let go of in order to experience love. Will it be painful at times? Yes. Will it potentially lead to suffering? Yes. And that's part of the knowledge that we have to let go of or let go of just enough in order to still move towards love. Let go of the idea of perfection. I'm going to go into two little music stories here. It makes me think of that song by the Melbourne group Hate Rock. Love is perfection. I think I even touched on this in another podcast episode. I said, love, no, love isn't perfection. Death is perfection. And then now, the My Bloody Valentine story and their album, Loveless, arguably the greatest album of all time, called Loveless. The story with that album is that they basically sent their label broke because they couldn't let go of the album. They kept pushing it and pushing it, wanting to mix it more, mix it more, put more time into it, more and more and more, because they're chasing this idea of perfection, this perfect idea of how they had that it had to sound. They couldn't let go. So what do they call the album? Loveless. Now, we're going to go into a little soundbite from a 1967 album released by the Maharishi himself. I was going to say the great Maharishi. Maha means great, I think. The great Rishi. Maharishi Mahesh Yoga. Yoga. (laughs) Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the man who brought Vedic meditation, or as they copyrighted it, transcendental meditation to the West. So in 1967, he put out this album called Love. Or I don't know what the album was called. Maybe it was self-titled, but there's a song or a track or a piece on it called Love. So we're going to hear from that right now. Let's get to it. Vande Bodhmayam Nityam Gurum Shankar Rupinam Yama Shrito Hivakropi Chandrasara Vatra Vandyate Agyan Timiranda Syogyananjan Shalakayo Chakchurun Militam Yeno Tasmai Shri Gurve Namaha Love is the sweet expression of life. It is the supreme content of life. Love is the force of life, powerful and sublime. The flower of life blooms in love and radiates love all around. Life expresses itself through love. 
the stream of life is a wave on the ocean of love. Life is expressed in the waves of love and the ocean of love flows in the waves of life. What a comfort love brings to the heart. The heart tickles with the thought of love and waves of life begin to roll on the ocean of love. Every wave of life is full with the ocean of love. Yes, such a life is worth living. Every wave of life full with the ocean of love. Such a life is life. Such a life is worth living. And who lives such a life of all love, of bliss, of power and of peace? The fortunate ones. And the fortune is open to all to design their destiny and begin to live life in all love and joy. The fortunate one uses the instrument of deep meditation and probes deep into his heart. Then the waves of love gain the depth of the ocean and the ocean of love fills the heart and thrills every particle of being. Every wave of life then flows in the fullness of love, in the fullness of divine glory, in the fullness of grace, in bliss and peace. The stream of life then flows on the tidal waves of bliss and the ocean of love permeates every wave of life. There you go. Maharishi laying it down, man. The fortunate ones use the instrument of meditation to, I can't remember what he said, but to tap the love within us, within ourselves, within this universe of which we are all one. All right, let's hear a track. Take it away with segment two. Carl Jung and love. Man, I get particularly excited about Jung. If you've been listening along, of course, you know this already. Granted, the last episode of season one was all about Jung. I haven't listened back to it, uh, except when I was editing it, of course. I suspect I went pretty deep pretty damn hard. There was a lot of reading. I felt like I had to do that in order to uh, do some justice to, to the man himself. Now, what we're going to focus on in this segment is from part three of Late Thoughts. 
And this is from an autobiography called Memories, Dreams, Reflection. This is what I covered in that last podcast episode. So as I mentioned in that episode, Jung was past the age of 80 at this stage. So at this point in time, he would only write when he felt it was a task imposed on him from within. So like I said in that last episode, the editors had, or who, what were they? Publishers had been into him for a while to try and get him to do this autobiography. And he was like, no, no, no. Why would he want to do that? And potentially, um, not damage, but it just, how could he do justice to his body of work preceding him, which he took such great uh, measures to make sure he expressed himself clearly and deeply. And now just to come along and, and talk about himself in an autobiography, he was like, no, no. Somehow they managed to convince him by teaming him up with a co-writer, Anila Jaffe, or Jaffe was her name. Such a gifted writer she was. Thank God for her, otherwise this book probably wouldn't have happened. So he was teamed up with her and they would meet once a week on an afternoon, spend a few hours together. So as that progressed, Jung began to feel that he needed to tell stories from his past in order to connect even deeper, which that which he was currently writing about or had been writing about in his own scientific papers, in his collected works. So when he says he would only write when he felt it was a task imposed on him from within, that was what he began to feel with this autobiography. So this section, this late thoughts, part three, have a guess what it's all about. It's all about love. Now, this little section, it's only a page and a half. God damn, it packs a punch. And Jung begins by speaking of Eros. Now, Eros, he says, is a daimon of ancient Greece whose range of activity extends from the endless spaces of the heavens to the dark abysses of hell. But I falter before the task of finding the language which might adequately express the incalculable paradoxes of love. Paradoxes of love, heaven and hell, Eros. Eros was a, like Jung said, a daimon, which is somewhere between man and God, a daimon. Or in Greek mythology, you could say Eros was a god. Or Eros was just a word that Greek used. One of the terms that the ancient Greeks used to describe love. Now see, the ancient Greeks, they didn't just have one word for love like we do. No. They had numerous, which makes total sense because love is such a complex thing. So like I said, they had eros, which refers to essential or a passionate love. Though I think Jung's understanding of eros is a little more broad than that. So in psychology today, as well, they use the term eros to refer to life force or energy. I found that out by a therapist who I've had a couple of goes with over the last 10 years. Her name's Claire. She's brilliant. I was seeing her a couple of years ago and she said, David, you have very big eros. And I was like, oh, well, what is that? She goes, eros. It's like a, yeah, it's like a vitality or a life force or a life energy. And I thought, damn, that sounds great. I'm stoked that uh, I'd be able to have that life energy. Yeah, I do have enthusiasm and uh, big life energy. And then she went on to explain that the opposite of eros is thanatos, which is, from what I recall, the deathly energy. Thanatos. You don't want to go there. Getting back to the ancient Greeks, however, so another word that they had for love was storge. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's spelled S-T-O-R-G-E, storge. And that's an affectionate or a familial type of love. The kind of love you would say that a parent has towards a child. Another term they had for a different kind of love was philia. 
P-H-I-L-I-A. And that usually translates as a kind of friendship. So, of course, the phil, P-H-I-L, appears in the term philosophy. Philo meaning love and sophia meaning wisdom. I love how the ancient Greeks had a wisdom was a, a f, uh, expressed in a feminine form. Fantastic. So philosophia, the lover of wisdom. So it's like a friendly, beneficial love of wisdom. Then they had another term. Get another term. <laughs> love is complex, man. This makes total sense to have many different words to express many different kinds of love. So this one is agape. That's how I'm pronouncing it. I actually don't know how it's pronounced. A-G-A-P-E, agape. The love of God for man and of man for God. You could say it's a kind of universal or unconditional love that transcends and persists regardless of circumstance. Agape, love, it persists. So yeah, love. It's a complex thing. Now, here Jung says, In my medical experience, as well as in my own life, I have again and again been faced with the mystery of love and have never been able to explain what it is. The great Carl Jung, whose life work was dedicated to understanding his own psyche and the psyche of the collective conscious and the collective unconscious as well, He had that period of about 10 years, I think it was, where he would keep consistently delving into his unconscious to try and unearth symbols that would come up from that in order to understand himself better. He dedicated his life to this. Then after he was like in his uh, mid, probably mid to early 80s, he admits that he says, like, like I just mentioned, that he has again and again been faced with the mystery of love and has never been able to explain what it is. Further on, he mentions, he could say, love is God, or God is love. There's a Latin phrase used to describe that. It's ignotum per ignotius. And it is to name the unknown by the even more unknown. I love that phrase so much. Ignotum per ignotius. So when you're saying love is God, love, it's a mystery. It's the unknown. And how do you express it? By naming it by the even more unknown, God. How can you explain God? You can't. Jung says, whatever one can say, no words can express the whole. God is love. Love is God. God is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. Everywhere. God is everywhere. You could say, how can you express the whole? You can't. Ignotum per ignotius. So how do you explain God then? Well, you explain it by the even more inexplicable love. Or the other way around, love is God. And then you have like that little (laughs) bit of the Beatles song. I sang before, I think it was John, this is John Lennon's song. All you need is love. Listening to it now, I think John was kind of joking, man. He's kind of taking the piss. It's like, yeah, all you need is love, but what is love? You can't even explain it. The countless songs and albums, works of art, literature, have all attempted to describe the mystery or perhaps what everyone is actually trying to do is understand the mystery of love via the expression of that which is within and whatever form it takes a song a book a poem we'll get to love and poetry later on with the troubadours of 12th century province in france that's the next segment we'll come back to that like I was saying, well, think about it. Like how many works of art is, is love the main focus? So many. God, even I'm obsessed with it in my own songs. <laughs> now, Jung, in this little segment, this little page and a half segment, quotes the Corinthians 
13.7 Love bears all things and endures all things. And Jung says, these words are all there is to be said. Nothing can be added to them. Wow. Full on. Love bears all things and endures all things. Nothing can be added to that. That is the phrase that covers it all. Or as best as it can. Going to read from Jung. For we are in the deepest sense the victims and the instruments of cosmogonic love. That's love in quotation marks. Here he says, I put the word in quotation marks to indicate that I do not use it in its connotations of desiring, preferring, favoring, wishing, or similar feelings, but as something superior to the individual, a unified and undivided whole. Like Jung said earlier, how can you express the whole? You can't. And like he said, he's not talking about love like, I love that color or I love that car. I mean, sure, they can inspire love with you, but no, he's talking about something that is superior to the individual. Like he said, a unified and undivided whole. Take it away again, Carlos. Being a part, man cannot grasp the whole. He is at its mercy. He may assent to it or rebel against it, but he is always caught up by it and enclosed within it. He is dependent on it and sustained by it. Love is his light and his darkness, whose end he cannot see. Oh, man. I just got goosebumps all over me. That's why I love Jung. You know, I love Maharishi speaking about it too. Love is bliss. That's, you know, it can be at times. That's great. But Jung does not ignore the whole. Remember how he said, Eros. Let me just flip back a page and read that bit again. When he was describing Eros, this daimon whose range of activity extends from the endless spaces of heavens to the dark abysses of hell. And Eros is one of the words the ancient Greeks used to describe love. That's how far love reaches. From the endless spaces of the heavens to the dark abysses of hell. Now I'm going to go on, read some more from Jung. Man can try to name love, showering upon it all the names at his command, and still he will involve himself in endless self-deceptions. If he possesses a grain of wisdom, he will lay down his arms and name the unknown by the more unknown. Ignotum per ignotius, that is, by the name of God. This is a confession of his subjection, his imperfection, his dependence, but at the same time a testimony to his freedom to choose between truth and error. Recall saying in a past podcast episode, I think it was Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre, we are condemned to be free. The freedom to choose. Like Jung said, the freedom to choose between truth and error. So truth is not the only path. It's like, look around you. Look around you. Krishnamurti, Jiddu Krishnamurti has this saying. Perhaps I've said it before. Perhaps you've heard it before. It goes like this. It is no measure of a man's health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Yeah, society's sick because truth is like such a distant second to the acquisition of power, of money, of sex, for the sake of affiliation. Where does truth come in that? Oh, God, somewhere down the line. <laughs> so even Pope Francis says in that fantastic documentary which Vim Vendors made, can't remember what it's called, but Papa says... He says, God loves you. God loves us all. We're all children of God. 
children of God. We're all children of God. So you have that divine essence within you. And Papa says, and you are free to ignore that if you like. You are free to choose to ignore that. The choice is yours. The choice is yours. How do you want to live? Choose. What am I going to choose? Well, I endeavor to choose truth. And what's that going to cost me? Well, my own truth has been, yeah, it's been a bit painful. Career, no real career to speak of. No real career. Has it been worth it? You're goddamn right it has. Has it been painful? Fuck yeah. At times. Would I have it any other way? Fuck no. No way. Do I always succeed in uh, choosing truth? <laughs> of course I don't. Who does? Human. We've got to... We've got to... Acknowledge, we've got to honor our humanity. And part of being human is this freedom to choose. Are we always going to choose the right thing? The truth? No, sometimes we're going to err on the side of whatever it is that represents an untruth. It's going to happen. Should we beat ourselves up about it? Well, we should be honest with ourselves about it. Should we get ourselves down about it? No, we should just like put one foot in front of the other and get to work on walking back towards the right path for us, for whatever it is, whatever it is for you. You're going to have to choose your own path. That's a truth. There is no way. <laughs> so now I'm going to cross over into something that's slightly related. Love makes a mention in it. It's more about emotions and truth and saying, and just kind of talking about the Jung thing, where it's just not that simple. Like Lenin was joking, I think, and saying, all you need is love. Yeah, it's not that simple. It's complex. So now we're going to hear from my man, Donnie Darko, and the scene about love and fear. Donnie's in class. And he's getting a lecture from one of his teachers who's just a fucking pain in the ass, man. But I won't put, you know, that's up to you to decide. Let's just hear it. Let's take it away. As you can see, the lifeline is divided into two polar extremes, fear and love. Fear is in the negative energy spectrum and love is in the positive energy spectrum. Duh. Excuse me? No, duh, is a product of fear. Now, on each card is a character dilemma which applies to the lifeline. Please take this. Thank you. Please read each character dilemma aloud and place an X on the lifeline in the appropriate place. Sharita? Juanita has an important math test today. She has known about the test for several weeks, but has not studied. In order to keep from failing her class, Juanita decides that she will cheat on the math test. Good, good, very good. Uh, Mr. Darko. Ling Ling finds a wallet on the ground filled with money. She takes the wallet to the address on the driver's license, but keeps the money inside the wallet. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Ms. Farmer, I don't get this. Just place an X on the lifeline in the appropriate place. No, I mean, I, I know what to do. I just, I don't get this. You can't just lump things into two categories. Things aren't that simple. The lifeline is divided that way. Well, life isn't that simple. I mean, who cares if Ling Ling returns the wallet and keeps the money, has nothing to do with either fear or love. Fear and love are the deepest of human emotions. Okay, but you're not listening to me. There are other things that need to be taken into account here, like the whole spectrum of human emotion. You can't just 
lump everything into these two categories and then just deny everything else. If you don't complete the assignment, you'll get a zero for the day. Donald, let me preface this by saying that your Iowa test scores are intimidating. So, let's go over this again. What exactly did you say to Ms. Farmer? I'll tell you what he said. He asked me to forcibly insert the lifeline exercise cart into my anus. <laughs> <laughs> Darko. In that last little part, they cut to a scene where he's, you know, a few minutes later in the principal's office. His parents are there. And yeah, you heard the rest. All right, let's hear a track. Don't break through 
right, we're back for the final segment on love. And we're going to go to Jojo Campbell and Bill Moyers and the power of myth. This keeps coming up again and again because it's so goddamn good. Now, this book is uh, Joseph Campbell being interviewed by Bill Moyers. I think Campbell, again, at this time, I think he's around 80 years old. So he's up there, man. He's been around. And the segment or section in the book that we're looking at is Tales of Love and Marriage. So this segment of the book begins with a poem by the troubadour, Giraud de Bornil. But before I read it, I'm going to explain what the troubadours are. So the troubadours were members of 12th century nobility in province in France. They later moved throughout other parts of France and Europe. And in Germany, they were known as the Minnesingers. Minne, M-I-N-N-E. Don't know how to pronounce that exactly again. It's the medieval German word for love. Now, Campbell says that the troubadours were responsible for the transformation of the idea of love in the West. Huge. That's huge. He says that prior to the troubadours, love was simply eros. Remembering what we said about eros, the god who excites you to sexual desire. It's a far more impersonal urge than what the troubadours, and therefore what most of us in the West today, understand falling in love to be. So Campbell reckons that people didn't know about amor, which is a Latin phrase. I think A-M-O-R back then. Now, amor is something personal. The troubadours recognized this. They were interested in the psychology of love, the person-to-person relationships or the romance of love, if you like. Now, Eros, like we said, it's the biological urge to copulate. Though, like I said earlier, I think Jung had a bit more complex idea of what Eros represented, what the word or the daimon meant to him. Anyway, but let's get back to this for Campbell's, Joseph Campbell's idea of what Eros is. So he says Eros is the biological urge to copulate and agape, as I stated earlier, it's like a universal compassion. It's like love thy neighbor as thyself, so to speak. So both Eros and agape, they're impersonal loves, whereas amor, the Latin phrase amor, might know the phrase amor fati, which is the love of your fate. Amor, however, it's more individuated. It's a person-to-person love. Now, this is the perfect lead-in to the poem I mentioned earlier by Giraud de Bornil. His time was 1138 to the year 1200, around there. So mid to late 12th century. I'm just going to read a little excerpt. But before I read it, I'm just going to give a quick explanation of what the word reconnoitering means, because it appears in this poem. So to reconnoiter is to approach and try to learn. All right, let's take it away. So through the eyes, love attains the heart. For the eyes are the scouts of the heart. And the eyes go reconnoitering for what it would please the heart to possess. And when they are in full accord and firm, all three in one resolve, at that time, perfect love is born from what the eyes have made welcome to the heart. Isn't that beautiful? It's through the eyes that love attains the heart. So beautiful. So amor. Amor, A-M-O-R, it's a personal ideal. It's got nothing to do with tradition, culture, the church, community, or family. Campbell says that the kind of seizure that comes from the meeting of the eyes, as they say in the troubadour tradition, is a person-to-person experience. Now, at this time, the time of the troubadours, 
Joseph Campbell leads me, at least, to believe that this, this person-to-person, this intimate love born of the eyes meeting, it's contrary to everything that came before. From what I understand and what Campbell implies, if not literally says, marriage could only be sanctified by the church before that in the West or organized by the family. And that still happens today, organized marriages. To this day, it still happens. So think of like uh, Baz, I think it's Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. When their eyes meet, there was that seizure. Romeo and Juliet, their eyes met and they were seized. They couldn't resist each other regardless of that deep standing feud between their families, between the Capulets and the Montagues. Now, the troubadours, they would sing and write poetry about this very kind of love, which was a dangerous thing, given it's contrary to nature, to that which the church would preach. And here, the interviewer, Bill Moyers, makes a great point. Let me just find the page. Bill Moyers says, So the courage to love became the courage to affirm one's own experience against tradition, the tradition of the church. Why was that important in the evolution of the West? Here, Joseph Campbell says, it was important in that it gave the West this accent on the individual, that one should have faith in his experience and not simply mouth terms handed down to him by others. It stresses the validity of the individual's experience of what humanity is, of what life is, what values are against the monolithic system. The courage to love, the courage to affirm one's own experience, even if it goes against tradition, the family, the community, the scene, or your own group of mates, your experience is sacred. It's entirely yours. In that way, I encourage everyone to stand alone in that way, but it takes courage. It takes massive amount of courage to affirm your own experience of love and not need confirmation from anything external. It's your own experience of love. But that kind of courage, I contend, that's the good side of the accent on the individual in the West. Of course, there's many negative sides to the accent on individualism in the West. Leads to selfishness, pursuit of power, and in doing so, you know, fucking over nature and other people in order just to get more business, get more money, to accumulate more and more. But we're focusing on the good side of individualism. It's the courage to affirm your own experience of love. So be courageous and be audacious when it comes to that which you truly, madly, deeply love. No one can tell you about how you are going to feel when you experience something. No one else can shed any light on that. They can't. That's why I find music criticism, so to speak, kind of funny in that how could anyone possibly shed any light on what your personal experience of a song is going to be? It could be the case with anything, 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 really. How can anyone tell you how you are going to feel about it or about a person? Of course, like I said earlier, love, it's far from being all bliss and no pain, You know, Romeo and Juliet, they both died in the end. Then we have Tristan and Isolde. The story of Tristan and Isolde. Here it is in a nutshell. Isolde was to marry King Mark. Though they'd never seen each other. This was an organized marriage. So Isolde's mother made a love potion so that their love would be genuine, would be real. And that their relationship would be loving. So Tristan is sent 
to fetch Isolde for King Mark. So seemingly Tristan is one of King Mark's men, right? Now Isolde's nurse is trusted with the love potion, but she leaves it unguarded. Tristan and Isolde both drink the love potion thinking that it's wine. And what happens? Of course, they're overtaken with love. But the thing is, they had already been in love. They just didn't know it. Now I'm going to go back to Joseph Campbell. Let's hear from him. The problem from the troubadour point of view is that King Mark and Isolde, who were to be married, they are not really qualified for love. They've never even seen each other. The true marriage is the marriage that springs from the recognition of identity in the other. And the physical union is simply the sacrament in which it is confirmed. So it doesn't start the other way around with the physical interest that then becomes spiritualized. It starts from the spiritual impact of love. Amor. I'm going to jump ahead here and see what Campbell has to say about a little more. Actually, it's just a little more on the story of Tristan and Isolde. So there's danger too, of course. So in the Tristan romance, when the young couple has drunk their love potion and Isolde's nurse realizes what has happened, she goes to Tristan and says, you have drunk your death. And Tristan says, by my death, Do you mean this pain of love? Because that was one of the main points, that one should feel the sickness of love. There's no possible fulfillment in this world of that identity one is experiencing. Oh man, full on. Let's keep going. Tristan says, if by my death you mean this agony of love, that is my life. If by my death You mean the punishment that we are to suffer if discovered? I accept that. And if by my death you mean eternal punishment in the fires of hell, I accept that too. Joseph Campbell. He says, now that's big stuff. And you're goddamn right, it's big stuff. Think about losses that you've suffered. A good friend of mine lost her her little boy, her little sphinx, who was just two years old. It's a painful thing. Love brings about great pain. It's part of the deal, though. Remembering what Jung said about Eros. Goes from the vast spaces of heaven to the depths of hell. Can be really painful and blissful. We're going to jump ahead. Let's hear from Joseph Campbell. So what he was saying, what Tristan was saying, is that his love is bigger even than death and pain. Bigger than anything. This is the affirmation of the pain of life in a big way. Remember how Jung quoted the Corinthians 13.7. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. You have to be willing to endure this pain, the pain of life in a big way if you are to experience love, to let go into love, be willing to endure pain. Now, Bill Moyers, the interviewer, says, and he would choose this love. Now, even though it might mean everlasting pain and damnation in hell, Joseph Campbell, any life career that you choose in following your bliss should be chosen with that sense that nobody can frighten me off this thing. And no matter what happens, this is the validation of my life and action. And in choosing love too, says Bill Myers, but Joseph Campbell says in choosing love too. So I just want to touch on that line because everyone knows the Joseph Campbell line, follow your bliss, follow your bliss. By bliss, I don't think that he means just good feeling all the time. I think he means bliss as in that which brings you alive, that which gives you that vitality, that life energy, that irrepressible life force, follow that. And let nobody frighten you off it. Nobody. And no matter what happens, Campbell says, this is the validation of my life and action. Oh, I've got goosebumps firing myself up here. 
Say yes to it all. Say yes to it all. We've got to be willing to experience pain and suffering if we want to experience love. So say yes to it all. Hopefully it's going to bring a little bit of light, a little bit of joy, a little bit of energy into your early February of 2022. Hopefully with a bit of time, it will go from COVID I'm talking about, pandemic to endemic, and we can feel a little bit more freedom and okayness with moving around our beautiful Melbourne town or wherever it is that you are living in Australia, in the world. Let's start to get out there, start to reconnect in person with each other, with nature. And let's say yes to it all moving forward. Thank you so much for joining me. 